Good evening and welcome to Ad Humber. I'm Irina Hamenka. Today we look at vaccination mandates for post-secondary students, another horrific discovery at a former residential school, and new government support for children's mental health. All that and more coming up on today's show on 96.9 Radio Humber. Vaccination mandates within post-secondary schools are sparking controversy as some people feel their rights are being violated. Schools like Western University of Toronto and York University are requiring students to have the first dose of the vaccine before residents' moving day. If students are unable to get the vaccine by moving day, they're given a time frame of 14 days after that. Fear-mongering has occurred since the pandemic has started and is part of the reason some may be hesitant to take a vaccine. At Humber reporter Alea Tinlin-Distant speaks with Kara Zweibel, director of Canadian Civil Liberties, to find out more on vaccines and whether or not you can be exempt from them. Why are COVID-19 vaccinations currently only being made mandatory for students on residence? On residence, I think that You know, the justification has to do with the fact that you have people living in this setting together. And so um, there's a, a greater risk uh, of transmission in that kind of setting than, um, than there might be in the classroom. Um, I think, you know, we do, um, as a civil liberties organization, have concerns about that kind of um Uh, requirement. And again, like we're interested in hearing, you know, what are the universities doing about students who can't be vaccinated, um, you know, or, or who won't be vaccinated for whatever reason? Does that mean they, they can't be in residence? Does it mean that there's an exception for them? And does it, does it mean that um, there's an exception that sort of marks them as someone who hasn't been vaccinated? So, you know, if you say, well, if you're not vaccinated, you're going to have to Uh, wear a mask, first of all, you know, mm-hmm. in your residence, um, that's asking a lot of people uh, sort of to, to wear a mask in their homes. Um, but it also means that, you know, you're, you're singling out an individual because of uh, a medical decision that they've made. So kind of what makes man- mask mandates different from um, vaccine mandates, you would say? Um, I, I guess, I mean, part of it is the Um, the invasiveness of it, um, right? So, um, I mean, a mask is a temporary thing that you put on and take off. And um, um, a vaccination obviously isn't like that. It's something that, um, you know, you, you get, you in, it's injected into your body. And um, there is something about kind of our bodily autonomy that's really, um, you know, important in the human rights sort of sphere that we don't, um, we don't let people interfere with decisions about, uh, about our body. So, um, yeah, so I think there's, I mean, there's a difference there. Uh, these, um, for either private actors or governments that are thinking about kind of vaccine passports or vaccine mandates, um, there is a question about whether it's like a temporary measure until we get to a certain level of kind of population immunity or whether um, it's something that we're always, you know, that now we're just going to require this. And um, if we require it, then does that mean that the next next infectious disease that comes along, you know, we're also going to have to treat it this way? And yeah, you actually did touch on one of my questions with um, child immunization compared to COVID-19. And yeah. basically, and I guess the sense of um, 
or more like human rights, um, generally the parents would be making that decision. So kind of what happens in the aspect if the parents is, doesn't want to take, have their child take that? Yeah. So, I mean, right now, at least in Ontario, um, it, it's not required that you have the vaccinations, um, but you have to, you have to sort of show the school either that you've had them or show them that you've, um, you, you're exempt from them. So you'd have to claim if it was a medical exemption, you'd probably have something from the doctor that says it, it's not safe for this child to, to have the vaccination. Um, or if it was uh, more of a conscientious or religious objection, then you would have the parents filling something out to that effect. Okay. And um, and they would generally still be allowed to go to school. Um, it's not like they're excluded from school, but it's just important that the school knows about their status so that if there were to be an outbreak or something, they would know that that child should probably, you know, not be coming to school during that time. That was Kara Zweibel from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Once again, disheartening news for Indigenous community. There was another shocking discovery at a former Canadian residential school. This week, a Saskatchewan First Nation announced that hundreds of unmarked graves were found on the grounds of a former boarding school. At Humber reporter Husna Sari has more in this report. Seven hundred fifty-one unmarked graves were found on the grounds of the former Marial Indian Residential School in Saskatchewan. On June 2nd, Covasis started using grounds penetrating radar to locate unmarked graves. Covasis chief Cadmus Delarmo officially announced the findings at a virtual NIF conference. We cannot affirm that they are all children, but there are oral stories that there are adults in this gravesite as well. He pointed out that the findings were not from a mass grave, but unmarked graves where hit stone had been removed. The Pope needs to apologize for what has happened to the Maryville Residential School impact on Taos' First Nation survivors and descendants. An apology is one stage of many in the healing journey. This discovery comes less than a month after fresh memory of founding a burial site, which includes 215 children in Camp Los Indian Residential School. These findings are another reminder to survivor of the nightmare. Winnie is one of them. She spoke at a recent protest in Toronto. She was playing on the maypole and then she was hurt. I needed to stay with her. She was my friend. They chased me away and I don't know what happened to her. I never saw her again. They told me not to say anything. Carla Nocasis is a survivor of Fort George Residential School in Quebec. She shared her abuse experiences at the protest. I know one time we were playing outside, we were playing tag, and then I was running up the slide. And I didn't know this priest was chasing after me. When, she, when he caught up to me, he threw me down. And I was yelling for help. He tried to put his hands through my leg pants. And I ran to the nun. I, says, I, I told her what happened. And he, she just told me, go play outside. 
The Marywell Residential School operated from 1898 to 1996 in Ekoapelo Valley as a Roman Catholic Church until Kawasi's First Nation took over its operation in 1981. Husna Radio Hamburg. You're listening to 96.9 Radio Hamburg. I'm Marina Hamienka. For Hamburg College, the school semester is fast approaching, which also means sports. But are varsity sports really coming back in the fall? The athletic department is hopeful sports will begin, but as they patiently wait for the green lights, there may be a few changes for the upcoming sports season. Daniel Dupuis speaks with sports information and marketing coordinator Brian Lapp to see what the department has prepared for its student-athletes. How is the college prepping for a potential season come fall? Uh, well, we're we're prepping that it's going to happen. I think right now we feel like it's going to happen, but obviously, like so much could change, right? So, so we're 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 getting ready as if it will be a year of sports. So we just don't know everything about it, right? So we don't know if every sport will be back. We don't know um, how long the seasons are going to be, but we have the OCAA has been working to make uh, basically contingency plans for every stage. So if they're shortened seasons, they they have that ready to go. Because a lot of it depends on how these stages are for with the government, right? So where they want us in, uh, you know, stage one, two, three, how many people you can have in a bubble, that kind of stuff. I know the league's been working really hard at looking at every scenario, every possible scenario and uh, kind of getting ready to go from there once we get closer. And as you prepare for this upcoming season, has Humber Athletics been recruiting any new athletes? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, so we're still, we're we're obviously recruiting because obviously without recruits, we don't have any teams. But at the same time, like they're, they're coming to school. There's a lot that goes into that still because uh, Humber College is a no exactly what's going to be online and what's going to be in person so then that hurts some of the kids that would be coming from out of town right because you need to get a place to stay uh you got to figure out all those logistics and whatnot too so and then without knowing if there's going to be a season you know it's kind of a, a big step for a lot of these kids i know you mentioned that the ocaa has plans in place have vaccines been a topic of conversation do student athletes need to have one in order to play yeah, oh yeah there's been lots of conversations about vaccines like we actually we just made a vaccine seen PSA video for uh for Humber because I don't think it's mandatory the college isn't going to make it mandatory I don't think but the OCAA is separate from the college right so the OCAA can make it mandatory to play um I think they're kind of weighing their options right now uh, obviously you don't want to like you can't force someone to take a vaccine but they want everyone to be safe right they want to we want to get back to doing like what we've been doing the last 50 years so I think they're weighing their options I, I'm not sure I'm not in on those meetings I got my first one and just so that I can get my second one in time just in case all this we do get back to sports right and we're ready to go and for those teams who normally start their tryouts in the middle of summer is humber college going to be able to go forward with those tryouts um, I don't think so. So what, because what we're kind of hoping is that the province gets back to normal first, right? So we want baseball to start. We want softball, soccer on the uh, provincial level, right? So Ontario baseball and soccer and softball. Once those get started, then they basically will give us the green light, right? So I think that basketball and volleyball will be pushed back later because everything's probably going to be pushed back because of, because of like what you said about training in August. I don't think there's going to be that. So I think sports will start in the middle of September if we do 
do have sports. They'll probably be condensed schedules and they'll probably be less travel. So sports that actually didn't have divisions, they'll probably have divisions now and then you'll be playing the same team multiple times, but it'll be less. Uh, they won't be staying in hotels and stuff like that. I think it's, they're going to try to keep all that to a minimum, but I believe it'll all be pushed back. And during all of this, have there been any big conversations that keep coming up? One of the biggest discussions is return to play about health and safety, right? So you can't just go a year and a half, two years without playing sports and expect, you can't put these athletes back in a gym and expect them to, to be the same, right? So there's, there's a lot of soft tissue injuries and stuff you got to deal with. They want everyone to have enough time to get back to where they're capable of playing at a high level. Baseball and soccer, if they, they return the summer, these then these athletes are playing and, um, you know, you're kind of working your way up. So once baseball starts for, for Humber, our athletes would have already been played for a couple months so that, that they'll be ready to go. And even right now, you're just basically waiting for the green light and just a little bit more clarity on how to plan for the fall. Right. Well, because like every day you look at the news, it's always changing, right? So we're in stage one, they're talking about stage two, and then there's talk about skipping stage two because we're so far ahead of those numbers. The OCAA has got everything covered. So it's not like when it comes around where they're going to be unpre unprepared. I mean, we just need to be ready to uh, go once it does happen. So right now, we just, once we get commitments from schools, we'll start going ahead like everything will be coming back to the most part it might be condensed there might be a couple sports that so because some sports are, are tougher than others right like uh like rugby i think with uh, you got the scrums and all that stuff right and you got a lot of people touching each other at the same time that might be tough but if rugby starts playing this uh this summer i don't see why we wouldn't be able to either unless there's a commitment thing from other schools brian thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me today about what sports could look like for humber college come the fall no problem that was Brian Lepp, Sports Information and Marketing Coordinator at Humber College Athletics. While allowing sports again is undoubtedly important for physical health, mental health needs as much attention. The Ontario government is providing another $1.5 million to support children's mental health. But while it's a step in the right direction, is it enough? The money will be going to support systems and reducing wait times for children in northwestern Ontario. However, mental health experts say the government could be doing much more. Black Norris is a PhD candidate at Queen's University studying biomarkers in patients with depression at Humber's Rajesh Dave speaks with Noyes, who gives alternative solutions for the government. What do you think of the government of Ontario's recent uh, funding increase into mental health supports for children in, in northwestern Ontario? Um, I think it's certainly good that they have increased their funding and that they're paying a little more attention to this. I'm not sure that the amount of money that they've allocated is necessarily enough. I think there's a lot of work to be done in this area. Um, and I believe, um, not totally sure, um, but I'm pretty sure Northwestern Ontario has a pretty dense Indigenous population as well, um, which, as we know, Indigenous youth tend to have heightened mental health risk compared to non-Indigenous youth. So it's, it's certainly good that they have given this money and that this money will go towards mental health programs. But in terms of the amount, I think 1.5 million per se, I don't think it's nearly sufficient to make that large of an impact in this area. So the government says they're going to be 
you know, increasing funding to help address gaps in care and reduce wait times. Um, but they're hesitant to go into specifics of how the money will be used. As someone that's been on the front lines, where do you think resources um, should be allocated the most? I would say in my experience, more funding into inpatient programs would be uh, certainly helpful. I know in the hospital that I work at, the inpatient program, we don't have a lot of beds. And because of that, the patients aren't staying as long as a lot of uh, mental health professionals think they should. Um, There's a lot of um, just very quick treatment and it's more immediate um, risk prevention in terms of Uh, making sure they're not harming themselves as opposed to actually making a huge difference in their overall mental health. So expanding the inpatient program for more beds and allowing these patients to stay longer, um, I think would be extremely beneficial. Have you seen the effects of COVID-19 on on specifically children uh, at at Kingston General Hospital where you are? Certainly. Yes. Um, I know. Sorry, that was the dogs that I'm babysitting. (laughs) Um, I, I mean, definitely have seen the effects of COVID-19 on mental health in anyone, but specifically children. I mean, it's a, it's a very important time of their lives. They're naturally social and missing out on school, which though a lot of kids don't enjoy the actual school part, um, really enjoy the socialization. So, of course, it's pretty easy to see the effects of COVID-19 on mental health. It's, it's quite staggering. In terms of your research, do you mind speaking a bit about your uh, project in general? And do you think more money could be allocated to research and similar projects? Or should it just be towards more patient care? Um, well, to answer the latter, it's kind of <laughs> kind of a tough question because... I'm biased with my research and the funding there, but um, I mean, definitely from what I've seen, there's there's a lot of work to be done in terms of patient care. So I would say um, more money towards patient care. Um, my research um, focuses on looking for biomarkers in depressive disorder. So I'm working with adolescents and young adults, and I'm using eye tracking as a method to identify biomarkers. So we're essentially looking for little things in eye movements where they're looking on a computer screen, their pupil size, how much they blink. And through that, we're able to identify subtle differences and in some cases, drastic differences between uh, individuals with mental health disorders and uh, healthy controls. For Humber News, I'm Virjesh Dave.
might come as a surprise. The COVID-19 pandemic is bringing some good things as well. Canadian charity organizations that produce wigs for children in need are now seeing a significant increase in hair donations. High Life Like Canada, which supports children with long-term diseases and their families, is one of the charities that is now getting more hair than ever. I spoke with Orly Davis, a director of operations at High Lifeline Canada, about the spike. Before COVID, we got hair. We got lots of hair, but not to this level. Um, we would get, you know, 10 to 15 a week, 10 to 15 bundles a week when we were happy with that. That's great. And then now I can't. The, the Our mail delivery person comes with like a big bucket every day. We're getting literally every day, like 30 to 40 packages a day of hair. And it's coming from all over Canada. But even still, I even got a few... Um, deliveries from like Taiwan was like the coolest place I've seen so far that we got hair from. Um, not too often from overseas, but across Canada, like it's it's incredible. Um, I think that's because we still where we distribute human hair wigs. A lot of other charities, I think now. Um, move to artificial hair, like synthetic hair. I'm sure there's a reason. I don't I don't know, but our clients seem to want the real hair, especially the tweens and teens. They want the movement. They want to feel like they used to. They everything else about them is changing. So they want to look um, like their friends, I guess, with the long flowing hair. So we still provide human hair wigs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we offer. We don't have um, synthetic. Yeah. And why do you think you've seen this part? Because all the salons are closed and people can't get the hair cut. So the salons are closed, but it's really funny is that the hair is still coming in. So like, I guess people are just the heck with it. We're cutting it at home or they're doing it with friends that are, can cut hair. I don't know. Um, I, I wish I had an answer. I don't know. I didn't cut my hair myself. Like I'm waiting, but it definitely spiked in COVID. So I guess what I think happened is because the salons were closed, they're like, you know what? I'm already growing it. I'll, I'll wait and cut it and give it to a good cause, which is so kind. Like community is really great to give back and they're dealing with their own Corona, you know, challenges and they're still thinking of others. And it's, it's very generous. The community is very generous and kind to think of these kids. It's, it's wonderful to see. Yeah, that's the positive side of the comic. And yeah. could you explain for people the importance of these nations for sick kids? Yes. So... The, the kids are going through treatment, which is very harsh on their bodies. It's harsh on their mind, psychologically, emotionally, physically. It's draining. Everything's changing about them. Um, it's especially hard for once they hit like tweeny age, like 10, 11 ish, 12, their bodies already start changing naturally. They're turning into teens. And then the last thing they want is, oh my gosh, now my hair's falling out too. Like they're, it's traumatizing. It's horrible for them. And so they want to feel a little bit normal. They want to look like their friends. Some of them are still able to do, well, now school's over Zoom, but some of them in between treatments are still able to go to school periodically. They want to fit in with their friends. So the wig program is really important for them. It lets them feel norm, normal. I don't want to use the word normal, but they fit in with their, their, their crew, with their clique. And they don't want to look different. Nobody wants to be different at that age yet. Maybe I don't want to say nobody, but a lot of kids don't want to feel different at that age. So it's a really important program for that reason. Helps them feel regular and look, everything else about me is changing, but at least aesthetically from, you know, my neck up, I look okay. Like you can't tell what's below the surface. So and what is usually their reaction? How do they react when they finally receive their weeks? It's bittersweet. It's very bittersweet because they're they're not they don't want to lose their hair. Nobody wants to lose their hair, but they're appreciative. You know, not all people that age can express themselves, but you they're happy. They're definitely happy, and they give it back a lot. Not all of them, but many of them give it back. They're like when they're done 
take it back and give it to somebody else. We don't want it anymore. Um, so we give it back to the wig maker. She washes it, she recycles it, and it's everything is full. So we don't get them all back, but um, bittersweet is the best way to describe the experience. They, they don't want it, but they're happy to have it. Mm-hmm. And except for hair donations, what are other ways in which people can support your organization? A great question. Um, we're always looking for volunteers, especially now, hopefully, once people are more vaccinated, the community of Toronto will open up again. There's so many deliveries. We have um, clients all over the city, not just in GTA, like out all over, not so far out of Ontario, because we try to send volunteers, but there's always deliveries. We're always looking for drivers to help do deliveries, meal deliveries, toy deliveries, visits to the hospital, um, at events, especially the family, not fundraising events, at like family events. There's We're giving out things, there's registration. We're always looking for support. Um, there's lots of ways. In the office, we're always looking for help. If people are you know, more administrative, goal-oriented, and they want to help in the office, we're always looking for help. Um, we have on our website a, a place you can see all the volunteer opportunities and sign up to be a volunteer. Um, if you check out our website, it's www.highlifelinecanada.org. And um, they can see there are lots of opportunities to give back. That was Orly Davis, Director of Operations at High Life Life Canada. You're listening to At Humber on 96.9 Radio Humber. Imagine using a portable transportation product that can fit into your medium-sized backpack? Henry Boy, a fourth-year industrial design student at Humber College, created just that. He took home first place for his creation of Bagaboard at this year's Rocket Show Design Competition at the Association of Chartered Industrial Designers of Ontario. His micromobility product is the creation of an advanced scooter replacing vehicles for short-distance transportation. At Humber reporter Sabrina Daniel speaks with the first place winner about his invention at home in Germany. Tell me about Vagabord and how did you come up with the idea? So Vagabord, the, the name first of all comes from the idea of Vagabund, being free, being mobile and traveling around without any destination. And uh, that's why I came to Vagabord. The whole process started in September. We were first had to come up with a thesis topic. So we had to find a problem in the world that we think is interesting and uh, we can add value to. For me, that was, I'm interested in mobility, also the urban spaces. And I think it's so interesting how urban spaces haven't been re-evaluated fully yet. And we saw all these Lime scooters and electric scooters. So I went through accident reports from Auckland City Hospital, which did a, a first analysis of like a trial run for half a year. Um, I looked at studies on the effects of materials and consumption and stuff like that on the electric electric scooters, everything in the field to try to get a holistic view and see what is there, what is the, what are the problems. And then you go over to the other side and say, what does the user need? What, what does the user want? Inspired you to just go right into this. It's, it's funny because it, it, there's never a straight path. It now seems like in September I started and here I am and there's one design that was the right one. And in between, I went through so many different iterations of folding paper, of working with cardboard models on digital models. And uh, I, I bought it for stand-up paddling, paddling, like it's a SU, SU, like stand-up paddling board. They are like inflatable, like it's drop stitch fabric, which makes you can pressurize it to something. So I tried to stand on like the pressurized board and see if I could put wheels underneath it. And then you could basically deflate it and roll it up. So, um, what inspired me to do it? I don't know, the function, I have a, the 
belief that it's possible to take something with you and the belief that there's not anything that's actually small enough for people to actually use how you can make that and and you just get a bit obsessive and you know result in the end what would you say would be your favorite feature of your product i so, so for me personally this product is is good but it's more a learning experience. I just enjoyed learning on it. And my favorite thing about it was the, the learning. I, I learned so, so much. I read so much. I developed my knowledge so much. I, I, I would build it differently now. And I mean, this is just a year ago. And I, I, I love that. I love that part. So that's my favorite feature about it, that I learned a lot. And I just got to play around with new tools and understand mechanisms and make the steering. But my favorite feature, I do like the design. I think the design language is really well done for all the constraints where it has to fold, this has to move, and, and, and. And the hinge mechanism, like having that hidden concealed hinges. Looking back at how your product turned out, would you do anything differently? Yes, yeah, the answer is always yes, always yes. Um, if I were to start from scratch and I had more funding, um, I would do a lot of things differently. I would love to test this one. I have, and I didn't show it in any of the presentations. I actually bought the motor for the board and I have like everything set up in the garage with like a working motor and a joystick so I can ride it. How was your experience in the design competition? Acido, that was the most pleasant experience I had in a while because I got to talk to two professionals in the field and defending my design that I worked for over a year. So that's what you want to do. You want to you want the input from people who know what they're doing, who are really good at what they do, and to let you know what you messed up or you did good on. And uh, it was, yeah, me just presenting and them giving feedback and telling me what to change. And it's been amazing. I, I mean, since then, I've gotten job offers via email, like all this stuff, like people have been contacting me from companies and it's been crazy. In one word, you would describe your experience as? One word great, awesome, uh, fun. It's okay. My Acido experience was amazing. I, I loved the interview. So we did a Humber. We just handed in our thesis, which is a hundred page plus report of how we came to this design, which is online. So you yeah. mentioned about like the thesis. So what is that? Is that the same thing or you have, is it like a writing component? So, yeah. So this is our bachelor thesis. Um, so our, our capstone project, that's why we do it over a year. And, uh, we actually, there was another competition at our thesis show which uh, which is basically the show of Humber. That was Humber's fourth year industrial design student, Henry Boy. For Humber Radio, I'm Sabrina Danielli. This month is Pride Month, which celebrates the LGBTQ2S communities. June is also National Indigenous History Month, when Canada acknowledges the heritage and outstanding achievements of First Nations, Inuit and Métis. To mark this year's event, a Toronto-based two-spirit Ojibwe artist is coming up with a unique collection of canoe paddles, featuring his indigenous art based on woodland painting style. Radio's Humber Shivana Zir has more. Patrick Hunter, a two-spirit Ojibwe woodland artist from the community of Red Lake in northwestern Ontario, paints what he sees through a spiritual lens, which is inspired by his homeland and the original works of woodland painter Norval Mauricio in various buildings around his hometown. And it, Red Lake is kind of like the, almost like ground zero for where this art form first began. So the art form that I paint in is called the, the Woodland School of Art. And it really only began in the, like the 60s. So not that long ago. And how it started was um, this man, 
Norval Morisot was, was painting our legends and our traditions. And that just hadn't been done before because a lot of our culture is passed down orally through storytelling and to see it kind of immortalized on a painting was just, it was new to us. To mark the National Indigenous History Month, Hunter has partnered with Canada Canoe Paddles to launch a limited edition of artisanal canoe paddles in homage to Canada's wilderness and the special relationship it holds for Native people. I I usually do a couple collaborations with non-Indigenous companies a few times a year and uh, the goal of the of the or the intention of what I'm doing has changed from just like you know, just trying to pay bills and get you know some form of artwork onto people's walls to to now just putting more indigenous artwork and indigenous indigeneity indigenous terms into the mainstream culture and one of the ways I'm doing that is collaborating with again non-indigenous businesses and putting my artwork and the story behind them um, onto whatever they want to do. So um, I love canoeing and it just was kind of like the right fit to to work with them. The paddles will be sold as a limited edition series. So there's four, there's four designs that they wanted to work with and they made, yeah, they made 300 paddles and each paddle actually has a little number. So it's, it's a very limited edition series. The four designs featuring on the canoe paddles are based on Canadian themes done in Hunter's woodland art style. It's a delicate way to inform people that maybe aren't as spiritual or, you know, don't think that way, that, you know, little blades of grass or, or trees or rocks have spirit and there's an importance to them. And, you know, we're not here to rule them. We're here to like live in, in harmony with nature. Hunter incorporates nature, trees, animals, and other indigenous imagery into his work especially feathers. I mean, I've, lots of people love feathers, so it's 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 a good tool for marketing. But uh, at the same time, um, I, in my culture, we kind of revere the eagle and, you know, a lot of cultures do. Um, but to us, like, they, they carry the, our prayers and our good thoughts up to the creator because they're eagles are, out of all the birds can fly the highest. Hunter will also paint two murals for Humber College in July. I'm going to, they're going to be painted. I'm going to paint them. And um, uh, one is in a library and one is in like a, I don't know, not a gallery, but like, it's like an open space. It's inside, both are inside. Currently residing in Toronto, Hunter is preparing to launch a Made in Canada collection of apparel and houseware products just in time for the holiday season. Shifa Nasir for Radio Humber. And that's it for At Humber. Today's contributors were Alea Tinland Distant, Husna Suri, Daniel Dupuy, Rajesh Dave, Irina Hamienka, Sabrina Daniel, and Shifa Nasir. Our technical producer is Noah Skanga. I'm Marina Hamienka. At Humber is produced by students in the journalism and radio broadcasting programs on 96.9 Radio Humber.